All right, welcome back to Dear Baseball Gods. This is episode 46, and we're closing in on Big 5-0 just in a couple weeks. So this week, we're going to talk about a couple different things. Number one, uh, cities. <laughs> Number two, uh, pitch counts and fatigue and rest and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and then number three, I don't know how I'm holding up four fingers. Um, we're going to talk about the recruiting process a little bit, but we're also going to talk about the molds of different players. And this sort of ties in the recruiting process. If you want to hear more about uh, recruiting this week, I jump over to the Twinsies podcast I do with my partner, Lucas Cook. And uh, we, we talked about that a little more in depth. But I want to talk about molds and how players either do or don't fit into their their role. So first thing, I found the Starbucks uh, issues that were, you know, relatively recent. So, you know, like the couple of men arrested, they've had some bad PR, kind of kicking people out of their cafes, not letting them use bathrooms, that kind of stuff. And uh, I, I tweeted about it the other day, and I have a little bit of an opinion on it, not because I'm not going to weigh in on the, the racial issues or any of that stuff. Obviously, it's pretty cut and dry that you know, racial profiling is wrong and it still continues to happen in our society all the time. Uh, but for me, I spent a lot of times, especially my last couple of years when I lived in the Philadelphia area. So in 2015, so in 2014, I played for Camden, the Camden River Sharks in the Atlantic League. And the next year, and our housing situation was terrible. They, the team just did a, an atrocious job. Um, they didn't understand baseball. They didn't understand how to put together a winning team. They just did an awful job. And they didn't understand that basically players need stability, especially when they're older players and they have a long track record. You know, these guys who played eight, nine, ten years of pro baseball, they have wives, they have kids, they need stability. If you want them to play for your team, you can't say, yeah, fly in, we'll put you in a hotel for three days, and then uh, you got to find a place to live on your own and just figure it out. That's not a great way to do it. They kind of do that in the minor leagues for the most part, but most of the smart teams find either host families or and host families aren't great. That's not ideal. I've had a couple really good ones, but in general, you can't like live your life normally that way, especially if you have a wife or a long-term girlfriend or, or children. But they, uh, most teams will put together a situation where they have, you know, they trade something with a local hotel chain or like a local apartment complex that isn't like always filled so when I was in spring training with the Somerset Patriots, what they did was they had an ex- they had a, an agreement with the Senesta, which is like an extended stay suites, that players could pay five fifty a month to be in one of these two bedroom uh, suites, these two bedroom extended stay hotel rooms, which had a full kitchen, dishwasher. Uh, I think they had maybe washers and dryers. If not, they're on the premises. So basically, just like a normal apartment. Obviously, five fifty is not super cheap when you're only making maybe two grand a month. But still, it was a good, they had stability, they could fly you in, you could be there for a day or a week or the whole season, and they would take care of it. And so it allowed them to have that covered. Like, if you want to come play for us, you'll have stability, you can bring your wife, you can bring your children, you know, that's really important. But when I was with Camden, they said, yeah, you have three days in a hotel paid for after that, you got to find something. Well, it's like, well, where am I going to find a short-term lease uh, A in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, which is a very expensive, nice area? Where am I going to find a short-term lease that I can just get out of? I'm not going to sign a lease. Like, I could get released in two weeks. I get traded. I get signed by a major league organization. Any number of scenarios, why would I want to do that? And they just were like, eh. Like, you know, so I slept in the uh, the hotel. I shared a hotel room with a teammate uh, named Wynn Pelzer. We did that off and on for, you know, splitting at the team rate, which was 60 bucks a night, which is obviously not cheap. And we'd pack all of our stuff. 
and take it on the road uh, and then come back and like check back into the hotel. So we did that for about a month and it was not ideal. We slept in the team clubhouse. Uh, I can't remember exactly how long I want to say for the better part of a week and a half, something like that. And that obviously was not ideal because I was on an air mattress in the training room where the ice machine would crash ice down every, every two hours when it produced a new batch. And most of the lights were like emergency lights in the clubhouse and they didn't really go off all night. Um, a lot of the guys lived there a lot of the season, a lot of Latin guys, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like those guys really, they had to like send a lot of money home. A lot of them had families. So when I say, unfortunately, like they just sort of got the short end of the stick a lot of times, but um, that was obviously not ideal. And then I moved into the Rutgers Camden dorm. I lived in this big dorm room building by myself on like a, you know, this nylon coated, uh, college mattresses. And that was okay. That was, again, I had a place to live. It was fine. It was like 500 bucks a month. I did that for the most of the remainder of the season. And then when I kicked out of there, because students came back in August, I, um, I joined a bunch of guys four guys in a one-bedroom or two-bedroom apartment. Maybe it was one-bedroom. No, it was two-bedroom. They had no furniture. You know, four or five guys that kind of rotated through there the whole year. And, uh, you know, that's why I finished, like, the last three weeks of the season. That was okay. But so for next year, I decided that I didn't want to do that, and I wanted to be proactive and find a place, hopefully in Philadelphia, so I could live in a big city and get, like, the pulse for the city. And so I did that, and I found a place on Airbnb uh, and uh, found, you know, it was a great one bedroom or it was a three bedroom house like a townhouse in Fishtown which is now becoming more and more gentrified and, and nice and, and safer than it was because uh, the Ken Fishtown if you're not familiar with Philadelphia Kensington is a really terrible area and it borders Fishtown so where those two start to like blend it gets it gets really sketchy and uh, so anyway I moved there lived uh, had my own bedroom and a shared house with this girl Lindsay who's a former Temple lacrosse player who's an awesome awesome person if she's around she's I'm sure she's not watching this but Lindsay you were cool uh so anyway did that for that whole season and it was awesome and I got a pulse for the city I would wake up in the morning I could go do stuff because I always have business projects and writing and web projects uh so I would wake up at like a normal time like nine maybe and go down to center city Philadelphia walk around spend three hours in a coffee shop go somewhere else get lunch go to another coffee shop for till like 1.30, then jump on the train, head over into Camden, go to the ballpark. So I had like a normal person's life, whereas most of the time when you're in the minor leagues, you just, you're in this like crappy kind of small town. There's not a whole lot to do. You're kind of isolated and you know, it just, it can vary. So I was appreciative that I got this big league uh, sort of, I got to live in a big city because usually the only time you get to do that is when you're in AAA, you know, like the Indianapolis uh, Indians are obviously in Indy. That's a big city. Uh, but most of the time, all the big cities are inhabited by only, like, one team, you know, like the big league club. And then there's obviously, like, some other teams on the outskirts or whatever. But actually being in a city is kind of reserved for just, like, the big league teams. So uh, so my point of this is walking around a city for a long period of time. And on off days, sometimes I would travel. I would go to another city or, you know, whatever. And if you're walking around a, a city with a backpack on and your stuff and you're kind of stranded there, and you're just walking around it all day, it's actually really hard to find a bathroom. And it's something you don't really think about, because I think when you have a family and you're on like a vacation, like you're always going to go and somewhere you're going to go get lunch, or you're going to go do this, or you're going to do that. But when you're kind of surviving on not that much money, like minor leaguers are poor, and uh, you're not going to go like buy something at a restaurant, you're not going to go here or go there, um, it actually gets really tough to like 
find a little respite in a city because if you don't buy something, you're not really invited in or you can go find the bathroom. You have to go, go to TJ Maxx or, you know, like bury yourself in the store to try to find it. Um, but a lot of places, they obviously try to keep the homeless out so they don't have public restrooms. Most restaurants, if you don't, if you're not a paying customer, you can't go in and use them. Um, and so obviously I'm not spending most of my day thinking about where I have to go to the bathroom. But when you're in a big city like that, you know, like I, I thought about this a number of times when I was, for example, when I was released uh, from Somerset, where I had about a week and a half when I was just like floating around and on the East Coast. I didn't want to be with my parents uh, because I was a grown man. And I needed also to find a training partner every day to keep throwing because I was hoping I would get signed any day. And so I was kind of like back and forth up I-95 in Maryland, staying at my sister's, staying at my best friend's house, staying with my parents. But I was like kind of a vagabond throughout the whole day. So from like 9 to 5, I was just like in my car, going somewhere, wandering around the city, like trying to be productive, like do things, try to get my throwing and my training in. But again... I like money was tight and I just, you don't, you realize that like, oh, I've been walking around the city for four hours and it's, uh, it's just like tough to find a little sanctuary. And if you're a homeless person or you're a low income person and you're like in that situation, like a place like Starbucks could be like your little oasis where you can just like sit for a minute, you can go to the bathroom and clean yourself up for a second and whatever. So obviously I understand that businesses don't want, you know, the homeless roaming in and out. But I just remember, and like I said, this is kind of just a tangent, but I just remember living that life where I'm in a city for a long period of time. I don't have a hotel room. I don't have somewhere to go. Maybe I took the train in. And it's like cities aren't super friendly to that. And so when Starbucks recently announced that they don't care if you pay it or not, you can go in their cafe, you can sit there, you can use the restroom if you need. Um, I feel like that's kind of important to a small, a very small percentage of the population where again, I knew if I was walking, trekking around a city, if I could find a Starbucks, like, you know, buy the pee, I could go there. Like, it's not a big deal, but sometimes it is, you know? And, uh, like I said, I don't know how the homeless live. Um, it's obviously an extremely tough way of life and, uh, they find ways to do it, but it's just, uh, I don't know. I just thought about that announcement recently and I just thought about my experiences being kind of a vagabond, like traveling through cities and being released and just being in cities all day. And it, uh, it just provoked a little bit of thought. That's all. So here's what I want to get into today. So first let's talk about pitch counts and fatigue because, uh, contextually I watched a player that I worked with pitch four innings. Uh, had a day off, pitched four more innings. So that's a lot of pitching, number one. Um, and the question that I'm going to kind of answer in this little segment is, what does that do to you as a player? Besides being a precursor to injury, because basically the way injuries work in pitching are either your shoulder or your elbow muscles aren't strong and well-conditioned enough to constantly provide protection like a bodyguard to the soft tissues beneath it. So you have your UCL in your elbow, you have your labrum in your shoulder, all these tendons and ligaments. And basically they can all like rub around and get knocked into stuff and they can get pulled in different directions and more stress can be put on them if the muscles around them aren't protecting them from that. Just think of them kind of like their bodyguards. So with your UCL, especially in your elbow, this friendly little guy right here, it's a passive structure, and they know that the UCL can't take as much stress as even one throw, one pitch causes. But because of the forearm muscles 
uh, contracting to hold that joint together, they help attenuate, they help reduce that stress that flows through the UCL. So without forearm muscles, your, your, your UCL would snap on any given pitch, right? If you just, if you're like a skeleton with just that ligament. Now, the same holds true. So like, obviously most pitchers pitch their whole careers and don't get hurt. Then most of them don't get Tommy John surgery. It's certainly an epidemic, but the vast majority of players will not have the surgery. A huge pr- pr- proportion of major leaguers, because they played so long, you know, they've had it at some point. I think, I don't remember what the percentage is these days, but um, obviously it, it bites the players that throw the hardest and play the longest. But it's, you know, it's like a rope, and when threads break over time, it wears down. But fatigue is a really a really big factor because as your forearm muscles fatigue, they cannot contract as well to protect your ligament the way that they normally would. So if you throw 10 pitches and you're perfectly fresh and you're in great shape, uh, those probably aren't going to cause, like, too much stress on your elbow. But if you throw 10 pitches and their pitch is 130 through 140 on that game – your forearm muscles are doing much less to protect that ligament, and now it feels more stress, and maybe a couple of those little fibers pop. And usually UCL doesn't blow that day, but because it wasn't as well protected, you know, a couple couple arrows made it over the, the, the castle walls, you know what I mean, and took a couple of people out. And so now, overall, it's weakened a little bit. So when you're, and this is one of the things the Modus company is trying to do with the sleeves that my team uses is, is monitor fatigue and give you guidelines where you're always adding a little bit to their workload or just taking a little bit off, but you're never adding a huge dose or taking off a huge dose because then you get deconditioned. So you want to be accurately, adequately conditioned to do whatever you're going to do. So if you're used to throwing 100 pitches every, every four, fifth day and then you throw 140, red flag, your body's not going to be ready for that. But if you throw 115 you'll probably be fine. And then if next time you throw 115, then you want to throw 125 because you're getting used to it and it still stays within this narrow band of like 1.2. It's like 20% higher, 20% lower. You should be in, in pretty much good shape to do it. So when you, so besides the injury mechanism, you know, when fatigue takes hold of you, you're more likely to be an injury because you're getting less protection. Um, besides that, here's what happens when, you're not well rested. And obviously when you're a pitcher, especially a relief pitcher, you can't just be perfectly rested every day. Part of it, part of being a pitcher is being ready to pitch. Part of being a pitcher is gritting through some stuff sometimes. And that's a really tough, it's a really tough thing to do because as a coach, I've told my players, I'm like, look, you will tell me if you're hurting, like, I will not put you out there. You will tell me. And if you don't tell me, yeah, there's going to be a lot of trouble. I'm going to bench you so fast if you're going out there with injuries that you're not telling me about um, because we're not going to make stuff worse. Little injuries can become big injuries if they are allowed to just fester and grow. So we need to just rest you and give you what you need. You're too young to make those decisions. However, at the same time, I played with players at every single level that any little thing that isn't perfect is an excuse for them to not pitch well, or it's an excuse for them to not pitch at all. And you can't play that way either. So it's about this finding this fine balance where I sort of know my body well enough to know what I can pitch through and what I can't, which is, it just takes experience. It's very difficult to figure that out. And I'm the king of pitching through pain. And, uh, it wasn't a positive thing in any sense, but I pitched through a lot of pain that I made an educated guess that I could. And then other times I pitched through pain it made things worse. And I got Tommy John surgery or I had a shoulder so flared up that I like could barely lift it. So with all this stuff, you have to find this balance of, I want to go back out. 
but really the coach is the guy who has to make the decision. Like you basically, I want every, if I were to ever ask a player, how do you feel? Do you want to go back out? I always want them to say yes. I always want them to say I can go out for another inning. If I see anything in their body language where they're like, like any sort of hesitation at all is certainly a sign to me where it's like, all right, no, you're done. But I don't really ask them to figure out how they feel or whether I don't really base my decisions on what they tell me. I just want to know, do they want to go back out? And then I make the decision if they do or don't. But I don't want players who say, no, don't put me back in there. Um, I don't feel that great. I, you know, I, I don't know that I can get anyone out. Like, you can't really say that as a player. Uh, it's a really disconcerting thing to hear as a coach or as other teammates that a guy can't do a job. Now, have I said that before? I think maybe like once or twice. And other players have said that too. And I think it's being fair to your coaches and being fair to your teams. But at the same time, you want to have the mentality that you can go out and do the job even when you're tired because you're never anticipating an injury. But it's for the it's the coach's decision to say, okay, I appreciate that you want to go back out. And I asked just to see where your mind was at, but you know, you're done, you've reached your pitch limit or whatever. So pitch counts are still the best way just to kind of limit kids workload. I mean, unfortunately with the motor sleeves being what they are, they have some value, uh, but pitch counts is still probably the best that we can do. And then monitoring, throwing a load throughout the week. But I want to talk still about what fatigue actually does to you as a player, because as a reliever, I pitched with uh, full rest. I pitched uh, two days in a row. I pitched every other day. I pitched four out of six days. I pitched five out of seven days. I pitched three days in a row a couple times. And what it does to you as a pitcher is very different. And so if you know how it affects you as a coach or how it affects your player as a coach, you can have a better idea of like what you're going to get out of a player and whether you're going to put him in a position to succeed or to fail. Because a lot of times coaches don't, they don't get it. And they just put players out there in a position where they're just going to fail. Um, you know, if you go four innings and then have a day off and then pitch four more innings, those second set of four innings are probably not going to go very well. And because here's what happens. So when you're fresh, you have your best velocity, your best feel. So all these little tiny motor controls, all these little fine movements that dictate how well I get on top of my changeup, how well I spin my change or my slider, my curveball. All those movements, it's it's very fine dexterity, and it's all controlled by your forearm. So when uh, your forearms are fatigued, which they're very underrated as far as training your forearms, uh, we do a lot of it at our academy. But you know, it's not just your shoulder; it's your forearms too. Especially when your forearms and your fingers start to get fatigued, a they protect your UCL less, but b they don't press on the ball the same way. And when I was hurt, so in 2012, I pitched through what we thought was elbow just tendonitis. I got a cortisone shot. Um, in reality, it was probably my ligament was partially torn or something. And then when the shot wore off, it was fully torn. I got surgery again. But it was weird because in every start, I could throw change-ups effectively in the first inning only. And it was weird because after a couple, it became a pattern. And I would make sure I threw a couple change-ups uh, because I could actually get on top of them. I could pronate my change-ups the way that I, you know, I had a very heavily sinking change-up. I could actually get on top of it and pronate in that first inning. After the first inning, whatever was going on in my forearm, all the, the messed up, I, you know, I got a forearm tear or that, that partial tear, 
my hand would not get to the inside of the ball. It refused to, it refused to do it. So after that first inning, my form, my chain to flattened back out and it was too hard. That time of my career, I was throwing 91 to 94 and my changeup was 84 to 86. So if I'm not getting on the end, those were good changeups, good versions of it. So if I wasn't getting on the inside of it, now it comes out 87, very flat. It's just like I threw him a BP fastball. So I could feel that because things were not right with my forearm, I couldn't do the physical, the dexterous acts that I needed to, to make my chain up move the way. I just couldn't control those pitches the way I usually could. Couldn't spin them the same way. Uh, and so that is obviously an extreme example, but when you're fatigued, it's still that same thing. So as you get tired late in the game and you're throwing your 90th pitch, your changeup, it might just be a little tougher to get just to the top of it where it now goes to the bottom of the strike zone or starts at the bottom and breaks beneath the strike zone, and now they start to stay up. Or you just don't quite get to the front of your slider, and it doesn't bite quite as hard. All that stuff is, is fatigue from your forearms. And any pitcher who's pitched deep into a game, they've felt that kind of stuff. But when you pitch too often – Again, whether it's two days in a row or four out of six or five out of seven or six out of eight or, you know, four innings, day off, two more innings, even that's a lot. Uh, You're not going to you're going to start the game with that kind of stuff. So, for example, again, when I pitch, say I'm going to pitch three days in a row and I did this a couple of times, not too often, but it was very pronounced what happened on those three days in a row. So I always threw one inning. First day, I'm at my best. Second day, I'm still. I still locate pretty much as well. I throw maybe a mile per hour slower. Um, and things are still pretty good, but again, everything's just like diminished a little bit. I don't get swings and misses quite as easily, and I can't pump a ball by a guy quite as well. My off-speed stuff doesn't break. It doesn't bite quite as well as it does. Third day, very pronounced. So it went basically from my best stuff to like, a B minus C plus version of my stuff, but it's still mostly there. I still throw strikes. I still can throw all whatever on the third day. Very pronounced. No idea where the ball is going. I release pitches where I'm like, sure, like mechanically everything's there. That's going to be a fastball down away and it goes up. And then I like throw a curveball, and I'm pretty sure like I caught it right where it's, and then it goes in the dirt. You just, the fine movements of your fingers and your hands, they just don't happen the same. So when you're really fatigued, it, uh, you try to do things and you're pretty sure you did them, but then they don't, the output is wrong. You're like, wait, like that was going to be a strike and it's a ball. Like, wait, how did I hang that curveball? Like, wait, how come that fastball is not getting by that guy today? That fastball gets by a guy, you know, two days ago, you know, and it might be you're throwing 92 then now you're throwing just 90 or you're throwing 92 then, now you're throwing only 91, but the spin rate is decreased too because spin is largely dictated by your hands and your fingers. And so me as a high, higher spin rate guy, you know, I would live up in the zone all day. When I'm tired, it was clear that my spin rate decreased. And, um, and my dad, who wrote the book The Science of the Fastball, he looked through uh, pitch effects data for a while while he was researching the book, and when he saw pitchers have a really long start, I remember he was telling me about David Price, David Price threw like a complete game shutout one day and threw like 140 pitches. And in his next start out, his spin rate of his fastball was down like 400 RPMs. It was a significant change and he got destroyed. He gave like seven or eight runs. So my dad had this theory that like if you go way above your, uh, your, your workload, um, you don't catch up because you have the same amount of days as you did before, but you gave yourself 
um, increased stress on your body and fatigue that you have to recover from, but you have the same amount of days to recover from it. So you just don't recover as well. So you're like your energy meter when you start that next time out is just starting at 85%. And so then you drop to the point where you like, can't get guys out the same way quite as easily. And that's kind of how it is. Like when you're, when you're a pitcher, you learn what you can get away with. And it's subconscious. You learn that, uh, basically like this is how I pitch. These are the pitches that I get away with stuff. This is how well I have to command my breaking ball. And you get used to that. And it's just a subconscious thing. And then when you're fatigued, you still pitch the same way. But the results aren't the same because your stuff is different. I couldn't pitch. I was like mostly a 90 to 94 pitcher. And I couldn't pitch below that. If I was 88 to 90 or 88 to 91, 92, I got destroyed. And it was because... I wasn't like this Jamie Moyer, like fine command kind of guy. I, I threw more over the plate. I elevated a lot more. So I did things that would hurt normal pitchers because I had some spin. I had some deception. I had a decent fastball. But as soon as some of that stuff went away, like the spin or the velocity a little bit, I did the same things, but they had just enough to catch up to me. Whereas when I'm fresh, they don't. And so it was weird to be like, I feel like I made the normal pitches that I would make and I just got lit up today. Like what, what's going on? So it's a constant battle to start, to try to stay fresh. And so coaches, if your kids, especially with youth baseball, it's really hard. Like I go through this now. It's really hard where if, uh, you're, I mean, your best pitchers are typically your best athletes. So your shortstop, your third baseman, your center fielder, you know, your all those guys have your best arms. So they're probably your best pitchers. Same on my team. And so now my shortstop's playing shortstop for three games, and I need him to start a game. I'm fully aware that he's just not going to have his best stuff. Like, his stuff still might be better than other kids because he's better than other kids. However, he's, like, a far lick from what he would be if he was fresh. And so you figure, how can I keep these kids fresh, and how can I optimize them so they're getting enough rest or just as much rest as I could possibly give them? Like, maybe you extra hit them or DH them the day before they're going to pitch or the, the game before in a doubleheader. So we play a ton of doubleheaders uh, just to try to give them a little bit more to catch up, save a little more on their fastball and a little more command and a little more all that stuff. It's just really, really tough. So you have to be aware. You can't just throw kids out there and assume that they're going to be themselves. Every kid has a version, and I say kid too much, but every pitcher has a version of themselves that's 100%. And obviously, you know, like you were Aldis Chapman, he's like, on a video game scale, he's like a 99. And then the next guy in the bullpen is like a 96 and then a 95. And then your mop-up guy is like an 84. So you'd always go to your best pitcher if you had him. But if Aroldis Chapman pitches four days in a row, like he did in the Cubs World Series a while back, it was clear that he was like completely out of gas and almost like wounded, where he was probably worse. Even though he was still Aroldis Chapman, he was worse than a bunch of guys in the pen, where you're better off going to those guys fresh than him super depleted and fatigued. And it was obvious that he just couldn't get guys out. Hardly. And he knew it too. He was throwing 96 or 98 and that was still three or four miles per hour down from normal. And he was throwing all sliders because he knew, he knew that if his norm is 98 to 101 or 102 and that's, and he pitches a certain way like that, he can't pitch that same way at 96 to 98. Even though you're like, dude, it's still 96. It doesn't matter. It's still relative to what he used to do. And he knew it. And I figured that out too. It's like, it, it doesn't seem fair. You know, it's like, wait, I'm usually throwing like 92 almost every pitch, and now I'm throwing 89, which this other guy throws 87. Why does he pitch well at 87, but I can't pitch at all at 89? 
it's because you learn to pitch with what you have when you're fresh. And when they take the freshness away and you start missing spots more, you don't have the spin rate, the speed, you know, all that stuff, the, the velocity, the bite, you just get lit up. And so those guys like Jamie Moyer, Greg Maddox, Trevor Hoffman, who learned how to pitch with much diminished stuff later in their career, they just probably figured that out real fast that this is what I have to do now to succeed. And they were just extremely good at it. But the vast majority of people aren't able to do that. They, 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 you can't write this shit fast enough. You know, you get lit up one time out. You figure to go back to normal next time. You get it lit up again. And then it becomes a pattern, and then you're, like, scrambling, and then after that, your ERA is already blown up, and they've sent you back down, and you're gone. And that's just kind of how baseball is. So fatigue is a really tough thing to, to deal with. Coaches have to be extremely aware of it. The modus sleeve is a good tool of trying to help people understand what fatigue can do to a player, how it can cause more injuries, and how to just stay within this range, so how to program your throwing so you stay within a good range of it. Um, but it's not just injury prevention, it's performance. And so if I'm sending a kid who pitches a bunch of innings, gets too little rest, and then I need a bunch more innings out of him, which I'm going to avoid that scenario entirely. Like I wouldn't do that. But if you're going multiple innings a day off and then multiple more innings, like this one pitcher I watched recently, you just got to expect he's going to get destroyed. You can't expect that he's going to pitch well. If he does, congratulations, you got really lucky. But you just can't expect it because he's not going to get the ball by guys like he usually does. The pitches he usually makes to get outs – aren't going to be there. He's not going to have as good a control. His breaking stuff's not going to bite as well. So you're just throwing out a crappier version of yourself. It's like taking a, you know, you crash your A race car, you know, most of those NASCAR teams and they have a couple, couple cars, but imagine they're not all identical. Imagine you have like your A car and your B car and your B car is just a good amount slower. Like you can put the B car out there if the A car is crashed, but it's not going to win. You know, it'll race. You can put them out there, but it's not going to win. It's not going to do anything. So anyway, it's all about fatigue. And in this last segment, so what I want to talk about now, I want to talk about the mold, and I want to talk about recruiting in the sense that you have to fit this mold. And I had this conversation with some of my players recently in that it takes a long time to, number one, figure out who you are as a player, to understand how your body type impacts you as a player, uh, to figure out what you do well, what you don't, and how you can sort of optimize your role to be a good contributing player, not only for your own team, but to fit into a team, uh, you know, whether it's college or professional baseball. So I'm going to give you an example. I, have a, I had a former teammate who was an extremely good college player, was going to go be a high ground draft pick, um, ended up having like kind of a letdown third year, but then got still got drafted pretty high, played a couple years, didn't do super well in the minors, got bounced out. Eventually, he and I became teammates uh, towards the end of my career. And he was a small guy, super fast, great defender. I mean, could flag down any fly ball if he put it in the outfield, played a great infield. And uh, just like a classic, excellent defender, hit a little bit, put the ball on the ground, steal base, just super fast, second baseman type guy. And you see a guy just like him in the big leagues, like Pedroia, uh, like uh, David Eckstein was a great example. Just smaller plays. Obviously, Jose Altuve is just like that. Small guy, fantastic hitter anyway. Um, he, when he played with us, his big problem was evident to everyone except for him, which was that he tried to hit the ball out a lot. He just got up there and he just took hacks, and he ended up flying to deep left center just an awful lot. 
And even though he was super strong for his size, I mean, stronger than almost any guy who was 5'8 or 5'9 I've probably met, he just couldn't, he just didn't have enough oomph to get the ball out if he didn't absolutely crush it. You know, he was like a five home run per year guy. And he was kind of like dropping his back shoulder and just crushing deep fly balls and flying out. So he hit 220. And like veteran after veteran guy would come up to him and be like, hey, hit the ball on the ground. You're a great defender. You're super fast. Steal bases. Get on base. Walk. You know, like torture pitchers over at first. Move yourself around the bases and be part of the run manufacturing machine. Um, just never listen. Just continue to do the same thing over and over and over. And so we had a guy who's like a leadoff type hitter who couldn't get on base enough. He's hitting 220 and doesn't walk that much. So you're like, well, where do you fit in then? If you can't be a leadoff hitter, like a Billy Hamilton type, and obviously very few people are Billy Hamilton, but you know, a leadoff hitter in general gets on base a lot, has long at-bats, hits the ball on the ground, if he gets on base, he's a stolen base threat, even if he's not the world's best stolen base guy. He plays excellent defense, typically plays second base or plays center field. That's the leadoff hitter in general. You need him on base. You need him to have a high on base percentage because two, three, four, and five are coming up behind him. You don't need a double out of that guy because someone behind him is paid to hit doubles and paid to hit home runs. And if you're a fast guy, you're a leadoff type hitter, if Billy Hamilton gets on first and then Joey Votto hits a double in the gap, Billy Hamilton scores. It's as simple as that. It's very, very simple. They don't need Billy Hamilton to hit doubles and triples because Joey Votto is going to hit doubles to get him home anyway, right? So within a baseball team, if you look at the big leagues, the lineups are very, very consistent in the kind of players they put in each role. So in the first hole, again, center fielder, second baseman, leadoff guy with a high on base percentage, you know, maybe a shortstop leads off, obviously, but the faster guys. Now you start talking about corner outfielders, corner infielders. Those are the three, four, five, six hole guys typically. Obviously, the first baseman has a ton of power, and uh, we'll get back to him in a minute. So does the right fielder. Guy's got some power, doesn't move as well as the center fielder. Left fielder doesn't move as well as the center fielder. Still good defenders, but more pop, more pop coming from those those uh, parts. Obviously, the strongest arm is in right field. Your shortstop has to be your absolute best most premium defender he's got to make up runs at shortstop you can sacrifice some of his defense third base guy's got to hit a lot he's going to be bigger good arm hopefully he's still a great defender but also is going to give you some more power too and then the second baseman defense is a premium getting on base is a premium all that kind of stuff catching save runs by framing the ball well save runs by handling your pitching staff well make your pitchers better and hit just enough to get by and then pitchers obviously you know throw lots of strikes and strike everyone out. But so with a lot of players, and I have one in mind who's a tall first baseman, high school player, tall first baseman, hits for average, doesn't have a lot of power. You're not going to play Division One baseball as a first baseman. They have to get power at a first base. They can't have a contact type, type hitter at first base. So if you want to play first base, uh, even if you're great, a great defender at first base, you need to fit that mold, which means put on a lot of weight. And if you can't hit for power, start learning to hit for power because there just aren't many. We've had some pretty powerful first basemen coming through our, our program and, uh, scouts still will be like, ah, he doesn't have enough power. He doesn't have pop for our program. It's like, really? He's got a lot of pop. He hits 98 off the tee and like, is a really strong hitter and hits doubles and home runs pretty regularly for us 
nah, he doesn't know enough. Not, not quite there. It's like, okay. And uh, they're looking for as much bang for their buck out of the first baseman. That's their biggest power guy. So, you know, you have to fit that mold. And if you're like, look, I, I can't really play the outfield that well. I'm really just a first baseman. But I'm tall and skinny and I don't have much power. I'm sorry, like, you're going to have a really tough time finding a place to play in college. Like, you to play at a very low level, you know, of maybe Division three or junior college, and there's a place for everybody, and that's fine. Uh, but don't tell me you want to go play Division two or Division one baseball as a first baseman when you don't have any power. It's just not going to happen. It just absolutely will not happen. I mean, go to a game and watch how big these guys are. That's got to be your biggest, most powerful player at first base because that's where they need the least mobility. So those are the kind of kids you're competing with. You're competing with all the biggest players you see in summer baseball for first baseman's spots. So if you're the, the, the skinnier, smaller guy with not as much power compared to all of your peers, then they're all going to be ahead of you in the queue to go potentially get a Division One, Division Two roster spot or whatever. And I shouldn't leave off junior college because there's some – I watched a great junior college baseball game recently, some big guys on, on at all positions, especially first base. So definitely don't discount junior college baseball. There's some – and really all the levels. College baseball in general, is it's a it's an honor to play at that level. It doesn't matter what level you play at. But I know everyone wants to go Division One. That's the, the big thing. But um, anyway. And then, you know, other molds. So even my own teams, I can see, like, where I think players will end up being. Even, like, 14, 15-year-olds. Like, where do you think they're probably going to fit in when they're old enough? Like, is this kid ever going to hit for enough power to play, you know, first base at Division One? Probably not. Is he ever going to hit? Is he ever going to be good enough at shortstop to play a Division One shortstop? Probably not. He's just like not quite smooth enough, not quite athletic enough. There's always an eye test too. Coaches want to see this smoothness that you see from so many Latin players, and you don't see from as much from American players. I mean, there's still a lot of great American shortstops, but um, like the smoothness, like the sort of just the eye test, the athleticism, is something you, it's hard to teach. And if they just don't have it, it's sometimes tough to develop that. Um, you couldn't, you couldn't develop me into a shortstop, no matter how many ground balls you hit me. I'm just too, I'm just too clunky and, uh, kind of bulky and just like, I'm not athletic enough to play that position. Like never would have been never, that wouldn't matter how much you trained me to play shortstop. Couldn't have played shortstop at division one. No, no shot. Um, and so like with all those places, like are, is he, is he fast enough to play center at the next level? He might be a good center fielder in amateur baseball or varsity baseball, Maybe not uh, out there. And then you start to look at pitching. So how hard do you throw? That's an important factor. And I'm number. I'm a big champion of you don't have to be the hardest thrower to play. I'm not one of those velocity-obsessed people. I play enough baseball to know that velocity is only part of the solution. And, uh, I mean, you should hopefully buy into that, that mindset because I've seen a lot of kids that are not these premium velocity kids go on to play college baseball and be very successful. But um, velocity is an important one. If you want to be Division One, you've got to throw in the upper 80s. There's some exceptions, but they're fewer. You know, I mean, just for the vast majority of players, the harder you throw, the higher your ceiling gets. And then obviously having a, a, an out pitch is a really important thing. So that's where you start to see players differentiate each other or from each other is when they have an out pitch. And here's what an out pitch is. An out pitch is when I need a strikeout, I can get it. It's like my button. It's like in a video game, like you have like one big gun with not a lot of ammunition in it that you save for when you're like really in trouble or whatever, and you got to get through a level, and then you like punch a hole through everyone that was in front of you, right? Like, and you played X Men in the uh, 
he played X-Men, the big like box booth video game thing. Like every X-Man had a power, but if you used it, it like hurt you a little bit, like took away some of your health. And then, uh, but it killed like everyone around you. That's like your outpitch. So like, obviously a guy like Andrew Miller slider is his outpitch. Obviously he throws super hard too. So he can, he kind of almost has two or all Chapman outpitches his fastball. Um, you know, Clayton Kershaw, it'd be hard to say cause he's just so good, but his outpitch is probably his curveball. I mean, like no one hits that ball in play hardly. Um, you know, like Chris sale, just nasty slider also, outpitches a fastball when you have more than one potential outpitch but like for me my outpitch is my fastball I manufactured I pitched in a way that I was going to get to the point where the last dagger I had to put in a guy was my fastball up in the zone that's how I got my strikeouts that was my outpitch so if I needed a strikeout I was like trying to think how can I manufacture this at bat to get to when I have two strikes and he's kind of on the ropes I can get a fastball by him so you're thinking okay maybe I go off speed early and try to drag him over the plate, then bust him in, then bust him up, and then bounce a breaking ball or whatever it is to try to get to where your outpitch can be your outpitch. But here's what happens with an outpitch. So I watched another pitcher recently who, fantastic changeup. Kid I, I taught a long time ago. He threw probably 100 pitches in five innings and just a phenomenal amount of swings and misses on his changeup. Like no one could hit it. Just throws it up in the zone, swing and miss. Down the zone, just no chance. Just a really phenomenal arm speed, phenomenal sink and run. Just a, a really amazing changeup. That's a bona fide out pitch. And I knew as I was watching him, like, he gets two strikes, changeup. And it doesn't matter if you know it's coming. You're not going to hit it. It was just such a good pitch. Your brain just doesn't get it. So with this out pitch, that's one of the things that helps you get to the next level and helps you get farther in the next level. So when you see guys who... And I, uh, I, I watched uh, the UMBC Mizzou game a bunch of months back. And in that game, the Mizzou starting pitcher was like a good left-hander, like around 90-ish through strikes, but he clearly couldn't put one of the guys away. And my alma mater, UMBC, is a small division one. Like, they're decent. But if you can't put our guys away, you're definitely not going to put hitters away from Auburn or from Vanderbilt, from Florida away, right? So... He had a couple, handful of strikeouts, but it was clear that he just like didn't have an out pitch where he could punch a guy out when he really needed to. When you got two strikes, you're screwed. He wasn't that kind of pitcher. When you got the two strikes, he'd throw a decent, well-located pitch. He was a, he was a good pitcher, uh, but he just like didn't have enough to like put a guy away. Because then as you go to the next level, if you can't put away college hitters, how are you going to pull away pro hitters? And then how are you going to put away double-A and triple-A and big league hitters? So having an out pitch as a, as a, at any level of baseball is absolutely critical because you have to get a certain amount of swings and misses to get yourself out of jams. You can't just always rely on batted balls because 300 is the batting uh, batting average for balls in play in the big leagues. That means three out of every 10 batted balls become a hit, whether it's hit hard or hit weak, they, they fall in, right? Bloopers, bleeders, swinging bunts, you know, ground balls with eyes, they happen. So if you give up 30 batted balls in a game, there's you're always going to scatter like 10 hits plus or minus, right? I know Dallas Braden threw a perfect game way back in the day. I, I don't think he had a single strikeout. That's extremely rare that, that would happen. Now, I'm sure he was, like, getting really weak contact in the big leagues. They gobble up all those ground balls. Uh, so, obviously, the, the weaker contact you get, the more, the lower your batting average on, or balls in play should be to an extent. But even then, it always sort of evens out. Like, Greg Maddox's career batting average for balls in play was still, like, 298 or something. So, even the best ones um, – are still subject to all the luck. So when you have, when you're trying to figure out how do I get to the next level, when you really want to impress a scout, besides velocity, besides command, 
it's having an out pitch. Can, does he have something that he could wipe out a guy if I need him in relief or if he's in a jam as a starter? Because as a starter, you're going to be in at least two jams on almost every start. And then how do you get yourself out of that? It's hard to get out yourself out of it when you can't punch a guy out. Bases loaded, no one out. You punch that first hitter out. Now you have one out, ground ball, innings over. But if you can never get strikeouts, it just becomes a lot di more difficult to get yourself out of jams. And uh, again, when they're always putting the ball in play, there's just going to be more ba uh, base runners in general. So it's it's a tough thing where if you don't have an out pitch, you need to find a pitching coach who can help you develop that. You have to find a way to sharpen that breaking ball to improve that change up. Because if you just get by in, in high school baseball and you really can't strike a lot of guys out, it's not a good indicator of your success going up. Strikeouts are a good indicator of success going forward because again whatever level you're at if you want to go up those hitters are going to be better in high school the best hitters you face is like every hitter you face in college and then in pro ball a pro ball team is like an sec all-star team right the four hitter from every sec team goes on to play pro ball and so you might face a whole lineup of those guys right so if you can't strike out them ever if you can't strike out the eight hitter in college baseball how are you going to punch out guys in pro ball? You're never going to get any strikeouts. And really, it's just an indicator that your stuff isn't that good where you can get swings and misses. And when you can't get swings and misses, that's also an indicator that you're going to have a tough time just missing barrels in general. Because again, whether it's swings and misses or just weak contact, it means you're better at getting them off timing and getting the ball off their barrel. And if you can't miss their barrel, if you can't miss their bat, then you're always getting their bat. And if you're always getting your bat, there's more likelihood they get their barrel and if you're not good at missing barrels, then you're just not a very effective pitcher. So with all this stuff, we have to like really take a hard look at ourselves. Do I have a legitimate out pitch? Most people don't. And if you don't, you really have to find one. You have to have a pitch to put away a guy. Um, do I fit the mold of my position? Am I a first base with no power? Am I a, a, you know, a shortstop with not a great arm? Am I a third baseman that can't hit for power either? Am I a shortstop that maybe doesn't have the range my center fielder that isn't really that fast you know where do i fit in best uh how can i build my body how can i get faster how can i give it bit, be it thicker and look more attractive to a college coach they want to see guys that fit their mold they don't want little skinny kids that are going to play third base at the next level i mean they want guys that can play the position and eventually you know build into hopefully pro players because when college college teams are building guys who could play in pro ball they're going to be winning programs so the mold is the same it's, it's the same in college guys just in pro ball get even bigger they just get even even bigger in pro ball so i'm sure if you went back and looked at aaron judge when he was at fresno state i think he went to fresno state i mean he's an enormous human being now but he was not nearly as big then even though he was a big guy i'm sure his entire life there's still like puberty, like man puberty. You go through a bunch of them throughout your life. And uh, I know I was remarking recently how even when I was 190 pounds, 185 pounds as a graduating high school or college senior and into my first couple years in pro baseball, I still looked like a skinny kid compared to how I look now in my last couple years of pro ball. Maybe it was just me getting a little bit fatter or just like old man strength or whatever. But like the pro game is very different than the college game. College game is very different than the high school game just the physicality of all of it. And again, you know, if you're a 145 pound kid and you want the recruiting process to start for you, good luck. How many 145 pound guys do you see on any roster in college baseball? And people love to point out one or two. They're like, oh, look at this guy. Look at this guy. Well, yeah, 
Look at Tim Lincecum. He throws a, throws a hundred. He's a freak of nature. Don't use him as an example. Like don't use Dustin Pedroia as an example of a little guy. Don't use Altuve as an example of a little guy. Those guys are absolutely freaks of nature. Jose Altuve is so good at getting the barrel of the ball, of the bat to the ball, that no one should compare themselves to him. He's the best human in the world at that. And just just because he he's five eight shouldn't give most people hope, uh, because even people who are six two don't put the barrel to the ball as much as he does. So sure, there's outliers, but guys like Jose Altuve are outliers. They're not. They're not people to really be inspired by. I mean, you should be inspired by them if you're small, and that's great. But don't think that you can just get by because you're five eight. Because he got by because he was five eight. He got because he got by because he was five eight. But because he was absolutely world class at everything he did. And most people who are five eight playing baseball aren't as good as he was, or or good as he is. So. We don't want to use outliers as good comparisons, too. It's always fine to use an outlier just to give you inspiration. But don't say it's okay for me to be 145 pounds because X, you know, it's okay for me to be 165 pounds because Carl Edwards Jr. on the Cubs is 165 pounds. The amount of guys Carl Edwards Jr.'s size, you know, he's like a maybe 6'1, 6'2, really skinny guy, throws 98. The amount of guys his size that throw that hard are like, one in 50 million. I mean, in general, bigger bodies throw harder. So we just want to make sure, again, fitting the mold in the recruiting process is huge. And you just go to a college game, go to a bunch of college games, watch the whatever position you feel like you could play in college baseball and look at the size of those guys and the physicality and what they're capable of doing. And then look hard at yourself or look hard at your son and say, can, are, are you that? Can you be that in a year? Like, can you, are you really capable of that? And if not, that's okay. Let's put in the work and find someone who can help us do that. So I think that's all I got on the recruiting process today and the mold. But this was it uh, for Dear Baseball Gods episode 45. Um, got two decent segments in, ranted about Starbucks and bathrooms for a while. So, you know, here we are. Um, I got my Snapchat spectacles coming in the mail tomorrow. Pretty excited about that. Um, I'm still in a week two of coping with uh, my shaved head. So we're getting, we're getting through that as well. Um, but yeah, so follow us on Snapchat, on Instagram, on Facebook, the Warbird Senators, Warbird Academy, Coach Dan Blewett. We're, uh, we're going to be doing a lot of fun stuff. So you'll get a, a really good behind the scenes. If you follow me on Snapchat, Warbird underscore Academy on Snapchat or Warbird Senators, all one word, all one word on Snapchat. So if you want to kind of stay tuned and and see what's going on at Warbird, how we kind of run our business, we're going to be really busy starting next week as our players come back as school gets out. And obviously um, uh, we're heading up to Milwaukee this weekend for a tournament. So stick with us. There's some fun stuff happening at Warbird Academy and we will, uh, we'll see you next week on Dear Baseball Gods.